You're listening to an audio recording from First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For recordings, resources, and information, visit First Family's website at firstfamilyministries.com. Well, our kids are being dismissed to their classes. I'll invite all our adults to find Acts chapter 6 in their Bible. Hopefully have a copy with you. If you are missing a copy or you don't have one, we have some Bibles for you in the back on either side of, of our sound area. That Bible is yours to keep. If you want one, just take it and read it. Use it when you come. It makes church a whole lot more meaningful if you have a Bible to follow along with. Whether digital or in print, a Bible makes a lot of difference here at First Family. Acts chapter 6. One more uh, just pastoral word here. Long before anyone really ever knew that we were going to plant First Family Church in 2004, probably sometime in 2003, there were about six of us who were praying about this endeavor. Um, me and Julie, and then our kids. Then there was Brad and Emily. And I think they. I think Brady was born there. Not okay. So just Brad and Emily. And then there were two other people, and they were the six who agreed that if no one ever joins us, we're going to give this an honest shot. And they're here today with me, with our family. They live in Tennessee now. But Jason and David, would you stand? Because I want you to turn around and look at what is out there. Because what you see is a result of your initial investment nine years ago with six of us. And I just want to say publicly, I know you moved away and you don't live here anymore, but thank you for believing in that idea. A lot of folks who have come to Christ are really grateful you did. So can you help me thank these two? You don't know them either. But um, they were probably key early on investors, and I love you guys, I really do. Um, Acts 6 is where we are today. We are jumping back in now to our series called Unhindered. We took a break for Christmas. Um, if you are new or this is your first time or second time, we're going to walk through the book of Acts in a series called Unhindered. It's going to take us about two school years. We're going to get through Acts 12 this coming end of May. And then we'll take a break in the summer and do some things related to Acts. And then we'll kick back in in September and go through uh, May of 2014, finishing out Acts 13 through 28. So that's where we are. We've kind of come up to Acts chapter 6. We're learning all about God's uh, early church, how it got formed and its persecutions, its problems, and yet in the middle of all of that, how it moved forward in an unhindered, incredibly powerful fashion. It's been a lot of fun to see this and very encouraging and motivating. We come today to chapter 6, which is really the beginning uh, of an office that prior to chapter 6, the word serve or the Greek word deacon or diakonos was only used in a verb sense, all right? It is in Acts 6 that that verb, now watch me here, turns into a noun and they actually set aside some men to do this in an official titled way. We're going to see about those today. They are called deacons, but that word is just, it's been turned into a noun because it was what people did. They served. They waited on some tables. We're going to see this in the, in the story, okay? That has come to be known as deacons, men who serve the church. And in this case, come more like in an official way because they were kind of titled or mantled with this word. We have some in first family. I'm going to ask if, we're, if our deacons are here. I know one's in Maine, so we can't be here. 
But uh, the ones that are in this service, some of them may actually be serving in some places. But if you're a deacon and your wife is with you, and uh, would you stand where you are? I know we have Dave and Lori back there. They're already standing because I think he popped in from serving because he knew I was going to do this. Anyone else in this service? I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. We had three or four last service. So I guess they're all early bird people. Am I missing anybody? Where is RJ? Man, okay. Thanks for being our moving target there, buddy. I appreciate that. <laughs> so RJ and Katie is in the service or not? Okay. And then there's Ben and Laura and then uh, Dennis and Carla and Greg and Sherry. Godly men. And I just want to let you know, we love these guys. They are just uh, wonderful men at really fulfilling and doing what we find laid out here in Acts 6. So let's dig into this and see exactly what deacons do, how they came about. My goal today is to kind of paint the specific picture of the text for you, which we do regularly. Then I'll take some questions, so if you have some, you can text them into the number on the screen behind me or that's in your worship folder. We'll address as many as we can within the time allotment. But then when that's over, I want to kind of take a second and paint for you a larger mural of the church. Because the deacons are the specific scriptural point of this passage. We'll understand that. But I want us to see a larger picture that I think will help all of us, all right? So let's dive right in, Acts 6. Let's make uh, tracks in our journey. Here's verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number. That's the phrase that describes these days, by the way. What days were they? They were days when the disciples were increasing in number. We saw that happen in Acts 1 through 5. Remember the... Moments that Peter would preach, or even when God would, uh, what we might think would be negative, he would discipline the church. There were, there were several moments and times and, and events in which the church grew, and in this case, grew by thousands. So this church is probably looking at a church of several thousand. It was in this time that a complaint, or the word could be translated debate, there is some sense that this word means secret debate, or perhaps a conversation or an issue going on, that hasn't yet gotten to the, uh, the apostles. Now, I don't think it was meant to be divisive. It could have become that. But the word simply means that there were some folks who had a complaint or an issue. They were talking about it. Here was the issue. It was by the Hellenists, or that would be, now watch me here, that would be the, the Jews of this body, but who had a lot of Greek in their culture. They would speak Greek. They lived in kind of a Greek environment. And yet they were Jews, and, yet, and they're also Christians. So you would call them Greek-speaking Jews, Greek-speaking Christian Jews. Now you recall at Pentecost, there were people from every nation on the earth at Pentecost. Many of them stayed, so this is not surprising, that the church initially is comprised of all kinds of nationalities and all kinds of cultures. So here are these Hellenists who were complaining against the Hebrews. Now, that's still a Jew, obviously, but it's someone who's really deeply embedded into the Jewish language. They would have spoken probably Aramaic, not actual Hebrew so much. They would have known it, but their language would have been Aramaic. They spoke it, and they, they followed a lot of Jewish customs. They were deeply embedded in the Jewish culture. And so you have Jewish people in the church, but one with a very Greek accent so to speak, and one with a real strong Hebrew-Jewish accent. Does that make sense? Does that make you think about today? Sure it does, where you have a body of believers, but there's all kinds of different cultures and preferences. When you gather more than about three people together, you're going to find this. Are you with me? This is what's going on here. 
This complaint was brought about by the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians against the really deeply embedded Hebrew Aramaic-speaking Christians because the widows in the Greek environment, so to speak, were being neglected in the daily distribution here, speaking of the food. Now, I don't think this was intentional, but it was an oversight. And so these in the Greek-speaking culture felt like, wow, the, the Hebrew embedded widows are getting their food regularly. What's going on over here? It was a complaint, an issue, a debate. Well, between verses 1 and 2, we don't know how the apostles found out, do we? All we know is that they did find out, the apostles were aware of this at some point, and they summoned the full number of the disciples. I love that verse. You know why? It shows very secure, open leadership. They weren't afraid to, oh, is there a problem? Is there an issue? Let's, let's talk about it. Let's hear it. I love that kind of leadership. We say among our staff a lot of times, and we'll say things like this, let's just address the obvious. And let's be captain of, of what's clear. Are you with me? And sometimes, if, if you're not careful, leaders are afraid to hear with big ears, and so we act like things aren't going on and things are happening. But the best thing a leader can do is often say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing this, hearing this, talk to me a little bit. Let's, let's listen, let's hear. Let's summon folks together. This is a great verse about just secure, honest leadership. I think it's also easy to lead that way when there is the right kind of communication from those who are being affected. Now, the text does not tell us how those in the Greek culture communicated to the apostles. We don't know how that happened. But I would venture to say it probably wasn't in a critical or proud or divisive way. That is an opinion. You could disagree. We have no text to prove either way. But the end result of this story seems to be that they communicated it well. They worked through it. Isn't that the way we want to communicate issues or oversights or problems? In a way that says, hey... In case you didn't know this is going on, can we talk about that? That's a whole lot better than talking to someone else about it for a long time and nothing ever happening to solve it. Amen? It's a good example of how to deal with problems and how to lead. So the apostles summoned the the full number of the disciples and they said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now that's a crazy answer. It'd be like if, if you guys brought an issue to the elders. And you said, elders, this is kind of what's going on. There's a couple of different strong cultures and preferences. And so, he, you know, there's oversight in this area. And there's a, it's not intentional, but can you deal with that? And we were to say, well, we're, we're not going to quit what we're doing to help that. You don't expect to hear that, do you? You expect your elders and your leaders to say, okay, yes, we'll, we'll help you. We'll address it. What they weren't willing to do was stop what they were doing to fix it. But they did say, we'll fix it. That's important because most churches, watch this, most churches, most bodies, if you live by the squeaky wheel, you, you leave one problem to address another one. And so really you just trade problems, don't you? Then this one gets real squeaky again, so you work on that and you forgot about that one. What they did was they said, listen, we can't leave what is our priority, which is the preaching of God's word, the shepherding of people, the discipling of all these new believers, helping folks grow doctrinally and theologically. We don't want to neglect the issue, but we're not going to leave what actually got us to this point. I mean, think about it, guys. They would have even had this problem if the disciples weren't preaching, if the apostles weren't teaching, if there wasn't good shepherding going on. The growth of this church is what brought this about. So if they would have said, well, we're going to just stop doing what we're doing and wait on tables, 
That would have been to trade one thing for another. And instead, they had the insight and the wisdom to say, you know what? We're not going to wait on those tables, but we are going to make sure they get waited on. The word wait, the idea of serving, the word deacon there. And so they say in verse 3, Brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. All things that were needed to to build a bridge between these two cultures, right? You need someone who's got some reputation, some credibility. You need someone with wisdom, and you need someone full of the Holy Spirit. And it says here, we will appoint them to this duty. That shows a lot of trust among the apostles and their leadership. They said, guys, we we don't want to step aside from doing what, what God's called us to do, but we don't want to neglect the widows in this Greek environment. So find some men who are of good reputation. I think what he's saying there is that there's a lot of trust on both, quote unquote, sides. Full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. And guys, deal with this and take care of it. Not so that it ends up in disunity or dysfunction, but so that we end up not getting detoured. Well, they picked seven men. It said here in verse 4 that these seven men were the kind of men that would allow the apostles then to continue in prayer and the ministry of the Word. I want to make sure you know what that means. When it says here that the, the deacons, these seven men were chosen so that the apostles could continue in prayer and the ministry of the Word... They're not saying they went up to some room and locked themselves away and, and prayed and read the Bible all day long with no interaction. I don't believe that for a second. I have some friends who think that the folks in the church should, should do all the work. I'll be in my office and you call me if you need me. See you later. Now, I am grateful for vast amounts of study time and prayer time. I really am. But let's just be clear about something. Pastoral ministry is a nose-to-nose Shoulder to shoulder, we're walking together kind of ministry. I, I don't have any desire to be separated from you guys in a weird way like that. I like getting next to you, hearing things, issues, and walking with you and obeying God's word. Does that make sense? But if we stop that, if we allow the elders to, to not walk with you and instead to do something else on a task basis, then suddenly... We're not making progress either. There has to be the willingness of the elders and those who are teachers to walk with people in prayer, in the ministry of the word, towards obedience, the Great Commission. You make disciples, teaching them to obey me in everything. That's what this means. And they were going to come away from the shoulder-to-shoulder, nose-to-nose kind of lifestyle with the Bible to simply serve tables. And the church begins to malfunction. Instead, they find these seven men who could actually handle this task. They turn it over to them. This saying, verse 5 says, was pleasing to the whole gathering. And so they chose Stephen. Notice these seven men. By the way, these are seven Greek names. These are not really Hebrew-based names, which tells you what? When they went to pick the people, they probably found, at least initially, some guys who had a lot of influence in this Greek environment culture. Stephen says he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then Philip. Now let me pause there for a minute and tell you something intriguing about the deacons. There's seven mentioned here. The first two take up the next three chapters of Acts. So if you think the deacons are the guys who are the Windex crew and they just hold the vacuum cleaners, fix the cars, and, and make sure the church you know, runs and they're not really that important, they don't know their doctrine, they're just kind of like fix-it kind of guys, you are way off base Biblical deacons are godly, spiritual, full of the Holy Spirit, wise, good reputation kind of guys. In fact, Stephen 
the, the rest of this chapter and the next one, it's all about him being martyred. You know the first martyr was a deacon? Now, guys, don't resign, all right? <laughs> I mean, what a godly man Stephen was. You ought to read his sermon. He was a bold man as well. Then the next chapter is about Philip, the deacon, who actually became an evangelist, so to speak, and was one of the very first ones to go out and begin to witness. And in and, and, and Acts 8, talks about how this man came to Christ. The next three chapters after this story, there are about two deacons. I mean, they're, they're indispensable. They're not coincidental. So here's Stephen, Philip, and then the other five. We know nothing about them really in the Bible. But I would think it would be safe to say, based on the first two and on the qualifications, they were just as impactful in their life. We just don't know what they did. It says here they were Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, and then a who was a proselyte of Antioch. Verse 6 says, These they set before the apostles. So there was this some kind of process where these men were selected. They brought them to the apostles, where the apostles laid their hands on them and prayed for them. You may think that's the end of the story, but it's not. That's the end of the process. That's the official documentation of how the church uh, began to be served and, and uh, ministered to by, by deacons in an official way. Seven men to start the process. But the end of the story is actually verse 7. Look at it, church. And the word of God continued to increase. You want to know if a deacon is doing his job? Then ask yourself, is the word of God increasing? Are the elders and those who are teachers able to continue to function in teaching and shepherding and calling folks to obedience? Are they able to be freed up from tasks so that more folks can, can hear the word and grow? When that's happening, you've got some really good deacons. Guess what, first family? You've got some really good deacons. And I can't tell you the number of times uh, they just come alongside the elders and personally just come alongside me and say, Todd, let me just take that from you. And my tendency sometimes is to like some of those details. There was a situation we had with some building things oh, a year or so ago, and I was wanting to get involved in it. And God just really convicted me, grabbed my heart, squeezed it real hard, and said, what are you doing getting in that? I'm like, well, I like it. He goes, so what? We need you over here. And R.J. came to me and said, Todd, let me just take that off your plate. Let me just do that. He said, you're not as good as you think you are at that anyway. And, um, and God just used that. He said, what you do, though, is nobody can preach like you, and you're good at this. So just do what you do well and leave us to this. I'm like, you know what, R.J.? I love you, man. That's awesome. And the tendency is to think we can do it all. But you know what? I can't. I do maybe one or two things well. I want to do those well. And then God gives godly disciplined, full of the Holy Spirit kind of guys who can do what they do well. And the church, in the end, works better that way. Amen? And this church did because the Word of God continued to increase. Look at this. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Now, now notice something here. Look at verse 7 and kind of put another eye on verse 1. In the beginning, it was increasing, wasn't it? They had a little pothole. They dealt with it. And then the end result was that it was increasing greatly. Do you see that? Wow, that's some really good deacons, isn't it? It's one thing to increase, but because they did their job well, they increased greatly. Now here's even the, a further proof. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. 
In which section of the culture would priests be? A Greek environment or a Hebrew environment? Hebrew environment. This is probably referencing very religious people who were lost, deeply embedded in the Jewish culture, but looking at the church like, you know, what are you doing? I'm not sure I'm getting all this stuff about Christ the Messiah. And they had lots of questions, but they were very religious, maybe involved in temple service. When those kinds of people looked at how this new body handled problems and potholes, and they said, wow, they're able to bring together Greek-speaking kinds of Jewish Christians and Hebrew, Aramaic-speaking, deeply embedded Jewish Christians. They can bring them together so that there is still unity. Wow, I think I'm in. That's what happened. That's some incredible bridge building by these deacons. That's incredible service. Which is why, if I had to put it in a sentence, I would say to you this. When you look at this exact story, those deacons were indispensable to the Jerusalem church so that they wouldn't uh, go down a detour. Does that make sense? What was the detour, Todd, you might be asking? Clearly, the detour was disunity and dysfunction. Had they not addressed this, then you've got a Greek-speaking part of the church that we're not talking to those really deeply embedded Jewish people. They think they're better than us. And then you've got a Jewish segment looking over at the Greek-speaking Jewish portion of the church. Well, they just kind of adopted their culture. They're into the new thing. They're not sticking with the old stuff. And they're never meeting, they're never united, and God's word doesn't increase. And all we have are factions and division. It's dysfunctional. Because God allowed seven men to build bridges, develop plans, use their gifts, and pull them together, and then see the widows get fed in both areas. The word of God increases. Even those who were really embedded religiously were getting saved. What a great story of unity and avoiding the detour of dysfunction. That's what a deacon does. He brings people together. He helps the church avoid a detour. He promotes unity. So you can see why it's very important that these character traits are mentioned. Men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. You go to 1 Timothy 3, you see the same thing. There's a long list of character qualities, which, by the way, if you took the character qualities of a deacon and those of an elder, they'd be exactly the same except for one difference. An elder is supposed to be able to teach. Doesn't that fit the story? Here the apostles saying, we don't want to leave the preaching and teaching of the word, so let's find men just as godly, just as, as spiritual, but who really aren't into the teaching thing and let them run this deal. The widows get fed, the church gets unified, but people still get saved. Hallelujah. Amen? That's what's going on. That's why deacons were indispensable for this Jerusalem church so they wouldn't go down the detour of disunity and dysfunction. Now, seeing that in a simple sentence is nothing new. If you've been at First Family more than a month or so, we do that quite often. We give you things in a real simple way, even though the text may be longer. Um, but some of you aren't always verbal learners. You're visual learners. Here it is in a picture for you. Are you ready? This is what the church might look like without deacons. A detour sign here, a detour sign there. But thankfully, when deacons are really operating effectively, this is what we see. No detour Thanks to the deacons. Amen. So next time you're driving on the road and you see a detour sign, 
Say this, man, thank God for the deacons at First Family. It's a visual way to kind of enhance your prayer life. How many of you saw a detour sign in your Christmas travels? Anybody here? I saw two or three. Well, there Luke did. Okay. When you see one coming up now in the next few weeks or months, thank God for the deacons of this church because they help the church stay on track and avoid detours. Now, let me answer a couple of questions, and then I want to show you the larger mural, okay? First question. There we go. Okay. Since they had seven deacons, should FFC get two more? Um, no. <laughs> That's how. Um, yeah, there are five here. They had seven. I don't think the trick is in the magic of how many they had. The truth is, the Bible talks about the right kind of leaders, not always the right amount of leaders. Does that make sense? Um, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 2, talk a lot about Titus 1, talk a lot about the right kind of elders and deacons. But nowhere in the Bible are we given a, a quota, like, well, a church of 400 must have at least 10 elders and 5 deacons. It nowhere. Or a church of 6,000 must have, we don't know. This church in Jerusalem had several thousand, only had seven deacons. And only when they were actually needed to avoid a detour. So if you were to run the numbers, we probably don't even need five. No offense, guys, not trying to run you off or anything. But the truth is, um, there's no real, there's no real uh, symbolism in the numbers. The key is not to worry about how many. The key is to worry about are, you, are they the right kind of men. Does that make sense? Churches go down the wrong road when they worry more about how many leaders you have as opposed to what kind of leaders we have. That's why here we guard the gate pretty thoroughly. It's not an easy road to be an elder or a deacon. Now, we are constantly inviting men to join us in that. But is it an easy road? No, it's a process of being examined, questioned, tested, looked at. Um, And then uh, we say probably when you're at that point, you know what? It's like a part-time job with no pay. It's kind of what it's like. Just a lot of time. You're going to be investing and you'll be helping us, but it's, uh, it's just a lot of commitment. So that helps answer that question. There's no real uh, symbolism in the numbers. Uh, the key is in the right kind, not the right necessarily amount. As I was thinking through um, this whole idea of deacons and what they did in Acts 6, how they look into, into this current situation as well, two things came to mind. One is, what happened at Christmas this past year. Remember the blizzard that came in? Um, I got several notes from some of our widows here at our church. We have five or six. And our deacons look after them. And they have one deacon in particular that really ministers to them. It's Greg Davidson. And uh, the notes I got were, Pastor Todd, thank you. Uh, Tell Greg Davidson thanks for coming and shoveling my driveway. Or, hey, tell Greg thanks for checking on me and calling to make sure I could get out or, or that folks would get in or whatever. Just checking on folks. Isn't that awesome? That's what a deacon does. And Greg was so faithful that time of the year to check on those people who sometimes could be easily forgotten. Are you with me? But instead, just were remembered. And I, I appreciate Greg doing that, shouldering up with that, being a faithful deacon. I was thinking last night about this whole idea of deacons. My dad and I were talking. And... Um, their church is moving to a new location. It's really kind of dwindled over the last 20 years. 
I won't go into all of that here except to say this, that uh, if they didn't sell their buildings downtown where they were and, and make some massive adjustments, they wouldn't even be around. So a few months ago, they just met as a church and their leaders decided, you know, we've got to sell, we've got to move, we've got to kind of restart. And my dad is 74, my mom's 72. I think that's about what they are, 75, 74. And my dad's very open to the younger generation. I'll be honest with you, the best guy I know at just embracing the younger people. But I can imagine still being 74 is not easy when you're looking at a boatload of change. Is that okay to say? And so we're talking last night, and I said, hey, how's it going down there? He said, well, our first Sunday is January 20th, and my dad's a deacon. So I said, what are you going to be doing? He said, well, man, I got a bunch of new stuff to learn. And I said, oh, really? I didn't know how this was going to go. And um, so he says to me, he said, yeah, we had an all-day training today for those of us who are going to be greeters outside and they're meeting at a camp is where they, they have a camp they own, and so they're meeting there in the initial time. And he said, everything's going to be different. We're going to two services in the morning. We're not going to have Sunday school like we do now. We're going to have small groups. Now, you've got to hear this, okay, humbly. And mom and dad, I know you're going to watch this probably too, so just know I love you just totally, okay? <laughs> but my mom and dad probably aren't. Um, I mean, they're just not small group people the way we do it here. They're godly. They love Jesus, but they would prefer it probably the older-fashioned way or the way they grew up, which is good, which works. Um, so for my dad to say to me, yeah, we're, we're going to move away from Sunday school. We're going to have it small groups in our homes. I was thinking, oh, my, is he going to be on board with that? And he said, and so your mom and I, man, we are ready to be small group leaders. I'm like, Dad, you're like a hero to me. You know that? I mean, 74, you could have, like, said something critical or acted weird or been superior. And instead, you said, you know what? Our role is to help. And he said to me, he said, you know, son, if we don't do this, he said, then we just don't exist. He said, we don't have another option. We either we get on board with this or we probably will die as a church. He said, I think I like this option way better than death. And they've been in one church their whole life. That's where I was raised and I love that about them. So the whole thing just spoke of, here's this deacon facing issues and situations and yet in a very mature way, Realizing there's more going on than just the way he had known it or what he wanted. And he just jumped on board and said, hey, I'm there, I'm helping. And, and that's really, maybe just illustrates well what happened here as well. Widows were in need, the possibility exists of cultures colliding, and these men came along and said, you know what, how can we help, what can we do? By the way, can I throw this out here to you? I'm going to, by the way. Um, <laughs> this was a new thing for this church. They had not experienced this. So when these deacons came on board and they installed them and they began distributing food in this way, it was different than they'd ever done it before. Some folks say, well, man, first family's not like it was eight years ago. To that I say, you are exactly right. You're a very wise, observant person. We started with about 33 people. We had about 60, then about 80. There's over 700 folks that meet here on a weekly basis. It is, it is different. It's not different in principle. We've always celebrated weekly grown in our small groups and served selflessly. We've always done that. But it has looked different in how we've met, where we've met, how our services have been structured sometime. There's a lot of things that aren't different, but you know what? There are some things that are different. And to try to say that that will never happen is probably ludicrous. You, you'll know this if you have more than one kid. When you have a child, you're like, okay, things will change a little bit. And you and your wife go from just being what we call singly married then you have this kid, and he gets every bit of your attention, or she gets all of your attention, and you think they're the angel from heaven. And then you have another kid. And suddenly you go from, like, you know, double teaming to man to man. And it just all changes. 
Everything looks different. If you have more than that, your home in 10 years will look totally different than it did when you had one kid. You had a kid, ever had a kid say to you, man, it's different here than it was when it was just me. You'd say, you're exactly right because it's not just you. I mean, guys, sometimes we state things and we have no idea what we're saying. Yes, churches look different as they grow. They look different as they overcome problems and situations, as they handle things, as leaders come on board. They look different. What you can't afford to do is run away from the values and the principles. And what we find here is the church of Jerusalem said, you know what, we're going to make some different moves in our structure, but we're not leaving the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. And they were like, okay, we're good with that. The widows are getting fed. We're still preaching hard. Let's keep rolling. That's really what's going on here. And that's the larger mural I want to show you real quickly as we close, okay? If you took this passage, after understanding the specific point of deacons, if you took this and lifted it up and said, how, based on this, would a church get along? I would say there are three words that, helps a church, uh, that help a church get along well. Holes, goals, and roles. And I would say to you, from just one guy who doesn't know a lot about church growth, but know a little bit, I would say to you that they need to be in this order. Let me see if I can explain this. When you're encountering situations of growth, you will have potholes. Situations where problems will come up. Oversights will occur unintentionally. Things are said, you don't mean to say them. You're like, ah, that was dumb. So you're going to have to identify where the holes are. Then together, you're going to have to see how do these holes that we've got to address fit with the prioritized goals that we know God has given us. If you try to clarify roles, now watch this, if you try to clarify roles before you address your prioritized goals, you'll always be addressing a squeaky wheel. You'll stop doing something important to do this over here. Then you realize, oh man, we stopped something very important. No wonder where something else is going wrong now. You have to address the holes in light of the goals. Does that make sense? And at First Family, it's always been our goal to celebrate, grow, and serve right out of Acts 2. So when we spot holes, when we hear from you guys at our fireside chats, when we hear from things, we want to be able to say, okay, how, does, how can we address that in light of what we know we have to do? Are you with me? Then once we address that, we begin to clarify roles. Well, it sounds like we might need this person. We might need to ask them to do this. We might need to adjust this. And I think when, when these words kind of characterize a body, when there's freedom and humility in identifying holes, and there's honesty about realizing that we have some goals we have to meet. Remember, some things are responsibilities and some things are opportunities. And the church does not have to address every opportunity, but the church does have to be faithful to its responsibility. Amen? So you, you kind of work through all that, you talk about it, and then you clarify roles. Well, well, Beth, will you do that? And, and Jamie, will you do that? And, and Matt, will you handle that? And then when we all do our roles, working towards God's goals, guess what happens? Ideally, the holes are filled. Then you keep growing, maturing, deepening. You find another hole, perhaps. It's expressed the right way. It's communicated humbly. You do the same process. Okay, how does this affect what we're doing, what God's called us to do? You don't forsake that, but you address the holes, clarify the roles, and the process just keeps working in a healthy, humble way. This is really the larger mural of Acts 6. And can I say to you, with all um, humility... This is what a lot of churches lack. They lack the humility to talk about a, 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 a hole. 
And instead, they just gripe about it over dinner or to someone else instead of talking to someone directly. Hey, can we talk about a situation? Often, churches don't prioritize their goals. They follow the culture at what's hot or trendy so they can be popular. I would warn you against that for this reason. I don't know that the day of being a Christian is popular anymore. In fact, being a part of a Bible-believing, Scripture-preaching, community-committed body of believers might actually create the environment where you're marginalized in the next 20 years. If you believe correctly about life, marriage and sexuality, the Bible, if you believe correctly about key issues... Don't expect to be popular. You'll probably be marginalized. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to say, yes, I belong to this family of people who follow Jesus and his teachings, no matter what it costs. Are you ready for that? That's what I'm saying, guys. So, so just trying to be popular or trendy doesn't really do anything for us. The key is, what are God's goals as laid out in the Bible? Let's do those. Where there are holes, let's fill those by then clarifying each other's roles. Now, as I thought through that, this larger mural of Acts 6, I got convicted pretty quickly on one area. Because I feel like we do pretty good on identifying holes. I think there's an environment here where there's openness. I think there's a good level of security. Um, I don't think anyone's, I don't think there's a lot of pretense here. Um, Our elders come to our lighthouses on a regular basis, listen to you with big ears. Uh, We're not perfect at it. But I think for the most part, we can hear things pretty well. I do think we've prioritized goals pretty well. Uh, We've always been about just a few things, and we do those intensely, and we do those faithfully. We're not perfect at it, but we take a good swing every week. The part that I don't know that we do real well is is clarifying roles. In other words, while I think that we've clarified elder and deacon roles pretty well, I don't know that for the vast majority of the rest of you, that if I said, hey, so, so what is your role here? Chris, what's your role here? Like, how would Chris answer that? Now, she might have some things to say, but they might be really different than the next person or that person. And I, I was thinking, you know what? We've not done a, a really good job, perhaps, at saying to our people, as a member of this church, as a member of this family, here's what we expect. I don't mean that in a weird way, okay? I just mean to say to you, here's kind of the role we really want to lay out before you. We've done okay at it, but I don't know that we've really done like a home run job at that. And so I'm praying this through, thinking about this conviction. And we're in Acts 6, and, and I sense God say to me, Todd, you ought to pause at the, end of this, at the end of verse 7 and just spend some time talking to the people about what it means to be a member of a church. How can this situation be duplicated? Because it will happen. There will be holes that will spot We want to fill them appropriately and do the right thing and hear and listen. But we don't want to get distracted and stop doing what's really brought us to this point. Does that make sense? This will happen. And are we ready for that? In fact, guys, get this. Sunday night, coming up next Sunday night, we're going to lay out before you three pretty big projects coming up. Three fuses we're going to light that take about three or four years. They're they're massive. They're going to cost a lot of money. They're going to take a lot of time. They're going to ask a lot from you. Those are... That, that situation is just potential for, for uh, potholes. you know that? I can say that to you honestly. It's also a potential for God to do an incredible work here that we've never seen before. Now, that's what I'm into, aren't you? But when you have great opportunity, you have great risk. And the risk is that it'll be misheard or misunderstood. We don't communicate clearly. 
And so we'll have to kind of go back and say, okay, this made this happen, now we've got to address that. We're okay with that. So to make sure that we manage the potholes, really go after the vision God's called us and communicate well, I emailed the elders. I said, elders, here's the deal. I'm sensing God just asking us to stop for a moment while we're in Acts and talk about what it means to belong to a church family. Uh, they sent back some emails and calls, and they were right on board. It was like, hey, you know what? That would be a good thing in light of what's coming up and our timing. Let's do it. And so we just kind of put our heads together, and uh, beginning next week, we're actually going to kind of pause our Acts series, and we're going to talk to you about what it means to be a member of God's family in like a very short three-week series called Remember. Kind of a play on words there. You know, I love words. And we're going to help you just make sure that you know what, is it, what it really means to belong to God's family. Now, don't hear that like me saying you don't know. I suspect most of you probably do know what it means to belong to God's family. But I would say this to you in all honesty because I think it's true in my life. Most of us don't give it enough weight. And he's kind of rest on you for a bit. Now, there's a few pockets of people who do. To be frank with you, most of them are older. It's my generation and below that sometimes we play musical chairs with churches in the community. We're looking for the greatest thrill, the hottest feeling. And I don't think we've put the right amount of weight on what it means to say, you know what, I belong to this family of brothers and sisters. And when there's some holes, I'm not going to find the, the next cleanest pasture. Now, you're feeling tense right now because you're saying, Todd, I came from another church. You're making me feel awfully guilty. That's not my point. There are legitimate reasons that people will find a different fellowship. Folks leave here often, different times. I wouldn't say often, but it happens. They leave and they find a new church. The key is to do that in a biblical way, and we're going to talk about that in this three weeks. When is it right to say, I need to find a new place? When is it not right? We're going to kind of go through that. I do know this, that when it's right, you will do it in a humble, helpful way. That's just the non-negotiable. We're not, no one's trying to hurt churches, are you with me? Or bring division, that's the opposite we're after. To let you know just how strongly I feel about this and that I'm just confident God led us in this way, I did something I've never done uh, two or three weeks ago. I, uh, I was meeting guests, and I love guests. You know that I want our church to be friendly and welcoming. I was meeting a guest, and just hearing his story, and um, the more I heard it, I just kept thinking about the pastor and the church he was coming from, and I was like, you know, this, that's just not... Um, I just was feeling real uneasiness, and God's Spirit just told me at that moment, said, tell this guy to go back to his church. So I did. <laughs> We're talking. He's in this building. He's a guest. We're agreeing. I said, you know what? Can I just offer a, a suggestion? He goes, sure. I said... I know your pastor and your church, and that's a godly man in a good place. And, you know, you ought to just go back there and talk to him. You know why I said that? Because that's what I would want someone to do to one of our sheep who might be out there just kind of like, nyank, 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 nyank. That's not Greek either. <laughs> Are you with me, guys? That's the kind of situation where I don't think we give enough weight to what it means to belong to a family. We're brothers and sisters. God is our Father. And if this is where you've chosen to put some roots, consider them that. Roots. Don't be chopping them up, replanting every two or three years. Stay put. Work it out. 
Now, the good news is we've not had a lot of that. We're still young. We're still fresh and new. And so a lot of folks that have come here just have stuck. What I, though, want to make sure happens is that we don't become like every other situation. I don't want to trade five for the new five. Is that okay to say? I don't want to find ten because those ten. I, I want to say, hey, here's ten people. They're new. Come meet some more people who have been here for ten years or eight years, whatever. And they've worked through a lot of junk and they're still here. You can camp out at First Family. That's what we're looking for. So we're going to spend three weeks helping you remember and kind of feel the weight of what it means to say, yes, I belong to First Family Church. That's the spiritual family that I'm growing up in. Does that make sense? Within that church, there are roles, elders, deacons, and sheep. We're going to talk about those. Carlos next week is going to speak from First Timothy 3. I'll do Ephesians 2 the following week. And the last week, we're going to have all the elders here we're going to bring you some kind of gunshot um, uh, statements from Romans 12, and we're going to take a longer time in Q&A. Why? So that when you see potholes, watch this, you won't let them turn into sinkholes, but instead you will use your role towards God's goals. It's a lot of old words, isn't it? But will you say it with me? Because that's really the point. The specific picture and the larger mural lead me to say, this is what we're after. This is the healthy church environment. Say it with me, would you? Potholes don't turn into sinkholes when my role works towards God's goals. The deacons lead the way in that. They're models for us. How to use your role to work towards God's goals. And then potholes don't become sinkholes. We should follow in their footsteps, amen? Who are they following? The perfect Watch this now. The perfect deacon. Jesus. I know he's never called a deacon in the Bible. But I will say this about his life. The same word diakonos is used to talk about him when it says the son of man did not come to be served. He didn't come to be diakonos. He came to serve. He came to deek. Now watch this. And to give his life as a ransom for many. The most perfect and faithful servant that we're to look to is Jesus. And when he served, he prevented the worst detour of all, didn't he? Yeah, your life and my life, man, we were headed to hell. That's the detour Satan had you on. All of us like sheep have what? Gone, say it with me, astray. That's a detour. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so the suffering servant died satisfied God, impeccable sacrifice. And now we stand in front of God, justified, clean, thumbs up from our, from, from our, from our Creator. God is pleased with you because of Jesus. That's why we can serve so freely and fully and selflessly. So are you looking through this morning? I love our deacons. When you see a detour sign, thank God for him. But don't look to him ultimately. Look to Jesus. He is the one who served the best and perfect. This resource is provided as a learning tool produced by First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa. The church's mission is to develop devoted followers of Jesus Christ in people groups around the world who celebrate, grow, and serve. For more information on First Family, visit our website, at www.firstfamilyministries.com 
This recording may be duplicated free of charge with attribution to First Family Church, Ankeny, Iowa.